Amen. We continue with our journey in the Gospel of Luke. And in this next installment, which we have on a Sunday, let me ask you about you being here on a Sunday. Do you have a Sunday tradition or customs? Things that you do in your routine, unwritten rules about the way that you treat Sunday, I wonder. Perhaps about the way that you dress or the way that you allow your children to dress. I was in a conversation with a parent who was uh, talking to his daughter and saying, love, you can show your midriff all you like in the week, just not on Sundays. She was obviously very confused. Maybe you have traditions about whether you do family devotions in a specific way on a Sunday, or whether you watch football, or how much football, hobbies, screen time, social media time. And I wonder whether those around you, when they look at your Sunday traditions, they go, I see that they are legit, or whether they go, they kind of feel hypocritical, or I think this tradition pleases God at least for our family for right now. Ideally, rules help protect and preserve, and rules and commands that we find in the scriptures are there to show us how to love God more. But there's always a danger, especially when we have our own traditions. The danger is we can confuse our traditions with God's commands, and things can go really wrong, like it did for the Pharisees who were more loyal to their traditions than they were to God and to Jesus. So last week we saw in Jesus' mission, on the topic, around the topic of food, around a banquet table, four pictures. We talked about how Jesus is the doctor who heals us from our sin. Not He didn't come for those who think they're healthy, who think they're right, but for those who know they're unrighteous, and he, he's come to call sinners to repentance. We talked about how Jesus is the bridegroom, the one with whom we celebrate because of his achievement at the cross and the empty tomb. And that means all who have Jesus celebrate him. And now we only fast in anticipation of his kingdom coming in full bloom. And then we talked about how Jesus is a garment and wineskins uh, with the contrast of the old and the new, saying that Jesus has now come to fulfill all of the old and to give us a new way to relate to God because of the cross. No more temple. This week, our theme that connects our two passages, verses 1 to 5 and 6 to 11, is the Sabbath. What is it? What's it for? And what does it show about Jesus' mission? So I'm going to try and persuade you that here's what's going to go on tonight. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And people on the computer will help me out. And two things. Loyalty to Jesus fulfills the very heart of the law. The very heart of the Sabbath. What it's for. Look at Jesus, be loyal to him, and he'll show you. And that this very law, the Sabbath, all of God's commands, are for giving life, for saving life, for producing spiritual life. So let's talk about how Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and loyalty to him means we fulfill the heart of the law. Think about Stan for a moment. Stan the stickler. Think about him for a second. Okay? We all know a Stan the Stickler. I hope there's nobody called Stan here this evening. I do apologize. If there is, I didn't know you were here. I hope so. Your name is not Stan. It's not Stan, is it? Please. Okay. A Stan the Stickler 
who loves rules over relationships, who has great attention to detail, the person who will, and I may be confused by this person, correct your grammar, correct your order of words in a sentence, your syntax, perhaps your spelling. Great attention to detail. Stand the stickler would do what Andy said this morning. The speed limit is 30. Not only do we go 29, but we put the cruise control on so that we can't even accelerate beyond the 30. Fantastic. Here's the danger. The danger is that a stan like that could miss the reason why rules are there in the first place. I mean, think about it for a second. If there's a rule that says don't step on the grass, and you go, well, that can preserve something like the beautiful aesthetic of this place. And you go, wow, there's someone who needs my help over there. I could either go all the way over here or I could run over the grass. Well, you know which one I will do. Because if the point of rules is to preserve and to protect, well, I can break this one in order to protect the life there or seemingly break it. Loyalty to rules, these sticklers, can put us in danger of missing the law's heart. But when we are loyal to Jesus instead, Jesus will show us how to live in a way that worships God fully. We get the heart of God's commands. Now imagine for a second, you've got the marshmallow test, because we all know the marshmallow test, right? You put a child at a table, you put the marshmallow there. If you don't eat it, I'll give you another one. Let's imagine the child is very, very tempted by the marshmallow. However, they are so allergic, they will die if they eat it. So here's what this child does. Not only will the child, very savvy, very rule-following, put a cloche over the marshmallow so he can't smell it or see it, they will leave the room, lock the door, put the key in a sewage pipe, inaccessible. Because this child has access to a lot of my little mini Tony Stark, they will set an alarm system that once he tries to open the front door of the house, the marshmallow will self-destruct. Is that over the top, do you think, or no? I mean, you might think those are good ideas. We have traditions that you might think, oh, you know, marshmallow is not sin. But we do this, like Andy said with the Pharisees this morning, we do this with the law of God. We hear, don't lust, don't look at another human being lustfully. And we say, do you know what I'll do? I'll just never speak to women ever again. Sorted, right? I'll just become a monk and I'll live in a jungle somewhere in Brazil only to find out that actually my thought patterns follow me there. The rabbis at the time of Jesus, like the Pharisees, did this with a simple command. Read the command with me and let's talk about what they did. It's going to appear on the screen. Exodus 20, here's the command. Remember the Sabbath, which means rest, the Sabbath day. By keeping it holy, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, a rest day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, and now we're going, what counts as work? Let's just set down some rules here, because we don't want to disobey God. Neither you nor your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And we want to ask, what's the point of the Sabbath? Because sometimes we, le- we read these familiar passages and you and I don't even see what the point is of the whole discussion. That's because we don't know our Old Testament very well. To see why loyalty to Jesus fulfills the very heart of the Sabbath and of the law, 
we need to know why the Sabbath was good and why hedging it and fencing it with other rules can be bad. So why was the Sabbath day good? We'll look at Genesis chapter 2. Look at that on the screen. I think I put it on there. By the seventh day, Lord had finished the work he'd been doing, and on the seventh day, he rested. Even though God doesn't need to rest, he does this to set a pattern for his people. So the Sabbath day is good because it was created by God. But it's also good because you and I need physical rest and to rest in God. And the added benefit is whenever I read foreigners in the Bible, I think of me. I'm a Gentile. I'm a foreigner, even in your country. And the country surrounding Israel didn't have a day off every week. Slaves didn't have it. If you're a bull, you get a day off in Israel. I mean, that's pretty good. Of course, it may become a burnt offering, but that's for a good cause. <laughs> but the Sabbath day, created by God for the benefit of his people, even of foreigners living in the land of Israel, it's also a sign of covenant loyalty. One of the ways that you know someone is a God-fearer, God-follower in the Old Testament times is they observe the Sabbath. And when people ask, why aren't you doing any work? There is still harvesting to do. You say, I trust my God and I belong to him and I rest in his law because I love him. And with that, the people of Israel would become a witness, a beacon of light into a dark world where they would see there is a God here who is loving, who is kind, who provides for his people. And when that isn't followed by someone who is living in Israel, you get what happens in Numbers chapter 12. Someone disobeys God. Although they could be living in any nation, they could leave Israel. They choose to remain and defy God. And they are judged with death. So the Sabbath is good. And it will be harmful for us when we disobey it. But what can go wrong with tradition on the Sabbath? Well, I said to you already, it can be confused with God's law, can't it? Listen to this. The Mishnah was a roundtable commentary and discussion by rabbis on commands on the Old Testament. So the rabbis would get together and go, right, Sabbath, don't work. What does that mean? What counts as work? They sit down, they talk together. It's all codified, um, written down for the benefit of posterior generations. And they would say, here are 39 items counting as labor, including things like untying a knot with both hands. With one hand, it's permitted. It is not work. If you're a mendicant, a beggar, you can put your hand in someone's house. Actually, no, you can't. You've just broken the Sabbath. You cannot beg by putting your hand in someone's house. One that is a favorite for teachers is that you're not allowed to engage teachers in conversation about their teaching on the Sabbath. I like that. You can't carry stuff from a certain distance. And if I want to give something to Dickie over there and I know I can't carry it, I can't throw it either. That's in the tractate, Shabbat. Can you see what the problem might be? You can see that the heart of someone can be good in trying to hedge the command, fence it around with lots of other things so you never get to even get close to breaking it. But while you do that, you can say to the rest of the world, you are excluded unless you follow exactly my traditions that God has not commanded. And so chapter 6 isn't just about some legalistic Pharisees. I think that would be simplistic. It's about what it means to truly worship God through his commands. Let's read it again. 
Verse 1. And think about it. Is Jesus worshipping God rightly? One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields and his disciples began to pick some ears of corn, rub them in their hands and eat the grain. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? In other words, we're just looking at another rabbi here. He seems reputable, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he's telling people to do what seems to be exactly the opposite of all of those things that were good because they were created by God, because they benefit God's people, because they're a sign of covenant loyalty and identity and witness. And Jesus is just throwing it all out the window. If you were an Israelite back in the day, you would have asked Jesus perhaps the same thing. Are they wrong to ask the question? I don't think so. I think they're wrong to not hear Jesus' answer. Because if they did, Jesus could have simply explained. When you look at a verse like Deuteronomy, look at it on the screen. Look at what the law of God says. If you enter your neighbor's cornfield, you may pick the ears with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing corn. They've created so many rules on top of what God has said, they don't even see what it actually says anymore. So Jesus says, let me give you some precedent. Let me give you someone who is a little bit like me in the Old Testament, King David. Read it with me, verses 3 and 4. Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. Hmm. And he also gave some to his companions. So now we got this problem because if you went to 1 Samuel 21, you're looking King David, right? King David is the greatest king of Israel. Let's look at what he did because if he did something wrong, we've got a problem. And if he did something wrong and God didn't actually judge him, we've got an even bigger problem. David is running away from King Saul who wants his head to be separated from his body. He's in a desperate situation. He meets Ahimelech the priest and he says, I'm on a special mission from God. 1 Samuel 21. I need food. Ahimelech the priest says, the only food we've got is food that you're not allowed to eat. It's consecrated. It's holy. It's set apart. Here's what happens next. Verse 6 of 1 Samuel 21. So the priest gave him the consecrated, consecrated bread. Since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. He gave it to him. Because that's a picture of how the tabernacle, the place where God dwells, is a place where God provides for his people. So it seems like a law is being broken, but God is showing the very heart of who he is, providing for David's desperate needs, even though people aren't normally allowed to eat that bread. Jesus is using this example to say, who decided what was lawful that day? Was it David or God? If God was so committed to David, a king to be, he'd been anointed, but he wasn't ascended to the throne yet. If he was committed to David, won't he be committed to Jesus, the Messiah, the chosen king in the line of David? Jesus is saying, a greater than David is here. And I'm telling you what God's law really means. I'm defining for you the Sabbath. And the heart of the law isn't for you to just follow rules. It's a way to show love and to worship your God. Pharisees, you've missed the point. That's why Jesus says in verse 5, the Son of Man, a title that he takes from Daniel chapter 7 to say he really is God's chosen one, is Lord 
of the Sabbath. Here's why I love this passage. Haven't lived in the UK now for, uh, you know, 10 years and haven't been uh, in various churches. I have come to appreciate some traditions, things that we do that I think help me to worship God. But I have also seen the danger in going to other churches that don't do things the way I do them, the way that we do them here at Walton, the way that I used to do them at Woodlands Church in Derby, and judging them and saying, you're not a proper Christian because you don't do dot, dot, dot. We are in the same danger as the Pharisees here of not listening to Jesus defining for us how even the Sabbath, something that seems so clear, is about worshipping God rather than simply not doing work on a particular day. Let's not confuse our habits with what God actually commands. There may be some really good things for you to do. And at the moment, I can speak from my own experience, and I'm following a liturgy as part of my devotional life. I sing the Gloria Patri on my own. If you don't know what that is, come and find me. Um, I'll pray the Lord's Prayer. I will read a prayer of confession. I will read a prayer that affirms, again, my forgiveness at the cross of Jesus. The problem would happen if I say, all of you must do exactly the same as me, if that is not how God commanded. It's a danger. So do we love Jesus more than we love the way we do things in our family, the way we do our liturgy, in our services, the way we go song, prayer, song, reading, song, sermon, song. If you hadn't worked out that that's how we do things every week, that is our liturgy, you know? So don't be going, we're not Anglican, we don't have a liturgy. I've just revealed it to you. Maybe we need to ask, do we love Jesus more than our dress code? If you love Jesus more than your dress code, your heart doesn't judge people who dress differently to what you're persuaded by. Perhaps it is how we see the roles of ministers in different churches. Perhaps it's that we love some things that really seem to make a lot of sense. Like, hey, think about this for a second. In our church handbook, it says that you've got to be a certain age, ideal age, for us to consider baptism for you. Does that mean we would never baptize someone who is seven? I hope not. I hope that's not what it means. Because that would make me someone who is putting my tradition above what God's word says. Maybe when you think about what age is appropriate to take communion, do we love that tradition more than we love the worship of God? If a child, I struggle with this, if a child says, I love Jesus, I want to participate in the celebration of his death for me, man, I find it hard to stop someone because they're not baptized. Think about that for a minute. Perhaps it's how you celebrate seasonal events in the Christian calendar like Christmas or Easter, or perhaps whether you know another Christian who celebrates the life of a saint. One of the things that I struggled with after first becoming a Christian was we can love our traditions so much more than we love Jesus that we begin to tell people that the places that don't follow how we do things are not spiritually alive at all. I remember having a conversation with a group of people in the Assemblies of God when I was a Christian there uh, in Brazil, and someone was saying, oh, you've heard of Presbyterianos, Presbyterians? We also know them as Soveterianos, ice creamians, because they are just spiritually cold, because they don't speak in tongues in the service, 
because they don't do this, they don't raise their hands like that. Do you know what can happen when we love our traditions more than we love just the raw gospel of Jesus, of forgiveness in your life? We obscure and hide the gospel. Because you might think that a tradition is so great for you and for me, but the next generation, they don't have those commitments. And so they would say, if you're not just giving me Jesus according to the Bible, I'm gone because that doesn't sound good. So the heart of the law, we get to the heart of the law when we meet Jesus and we let him explain to us. So what is it for? If we allow to Jesus and we fulfill the heart of the law, what's it for? What do you do with it? Well, that's the next point. The law is for saving life, not for destroying it. Here are some laws that give life or that preserve life. And as I say them, please can I ask you to put your hand up or give me a head nod if this is something you say. Keep your hands to yourself. Yes, yeah, I mean, there's a family there where every, everybody, right? Keep your hands to yourself. Preserves life, doesn't it? Don't put a trolley on this escalator. I've made that mistake once. It's all you need, okay? Don't run up the bank. Don't play with scissors. Is that a law that preserves life? I think so. Is that right up there with, don't throw that stick. Don't throw it. Because if you don't throw it, it will never end up in someone's eye. Walk, don't run. How many of us ever heard that in school? Walk, don't run. That, that, I mean, even from, Nana, even from your day. I love it. See, it's just, it carries on. Just like when teachers say, you're doing this with your chair. What do teachers say? I knew a child once split their head open. Internationally, teachers say this. In Brazil, they say it. Here, they say it. It's probably not true. I asked a parent just this afternoon, and I said, what are some things that people say that preserve life? Even that parents say. And our worship leader said this evening, don't throw your sister. That's not gymnastics. So it's a law that preserves life. Now, Jesus comes in and he says, the aim of the law of God is to preserve, to give spiritual life, to help worshipers of God to know how to love God because they are spiritually alive. So the law is for saving life. And he's going to show that in a very physical way in the next bit of our passage. He's going to say, I'm the one qualified to tell you, and I'm going to demonstrate it. Read verse 6 with me. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue. So the connection is the Sabbath there between the two um, bits. And was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Now we're thinking, here's a man whose situation is dire. In the ancient Near East, your right hand is a really important hand, isn't it? I would have been stuffed because I'm, I'm a lefty. I'm sinister, you know? That's a bit of a problem for me. But you shake hands, use your right hand. 
Your right, your right hand, you'll notice in the Psalms, is where God's delights are. It's the hand that holds the sword in the Old Testament uh, warrior descriptions. No right hand, no work, maybe no ability to provide for your loved ones, those who depend on you, affects your social settings. Maybe you can't give a handshake. Maybe even if you share food from a bowl, you would be eating with your left hand, and that's insulting. I know of countries even today where you shouldn't dip in the bowl with your left hand because that's the hand that you used to wipe your butt with. So we don't want to do that. Just one for you to keep. But you know, you see this bloke on the Sabbath. You put yourself in the shoes of those in that synagogue. What is coming to your mind? You see someone who is suffering. What's coming to your mind? Is it maybe how without that hand they can't wash themselves properly, dress themselves properly, and you think, what is my reputation going to be if I come near them? Is it perhaps, I must show love to that person like my God? Here is what the Pharisees think, some of them. Look at verse 7 with me. Here's what they're thinking. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were not looking for a way to bless this man, to pray for him, to provide for him. They were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Looking for a reason to accuse, watching him closely. Really, guys? Like, is someone in pain, someone suffering, someone who can't provide, and you care so much about your traditions, the rules, your interpretation of things, you can't see this man suffering? Jesus can see it. Is the purpose of the law of the Sabbath to tick a box and to ignore others? Jesus is going to say no. But we've got to ask as we read this, is there anything wrong when we don't realize that we are judging someone else by our self-imposed standards? When we are judging another family because they do family devotions a different way or they struggle to do them? When we are judging uh, another church or believer because the way that they structure their sermon is different. The length of it, perhaps. Maybe because their Sunday school looks different. Or it's a different style of service. Maybe because we judge those retired Christians over here because they don't live life like my retired timetable, which is a godly one. The danger for us, guys, can we so judge other people by our standards that we end up losing the opportunity to speak life, but instead to accuse. So the law is for saving life. Look at verse 7. Jesus is going to tell us that while they're looking for a reason to accuse him, he is the one who looks intently at them. He knows what they're thinking in verse 8. And we learn something amazing about Jesus. Just because he's being watched, and it's this. He saves life because he is God's perfect life. Here's what I mean by that. Imagine for a second here that I'm going to spend this next week with you. I'm going to shadow you. I'm going to go where you go. Of course that's creepy, but go with me on this. I'm going to go where you go, and my goal is I'm going to look for a reason to find something wrong with you. I'm going to look for a reason.